Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Sermon title today is How the World Works. Am I open to that? First few verses of our gospel lesson I'd like to reread for you. It says this, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. How the world works. Sometimes we ask those questions, how how is the world working? And we, we think we have it figured out. Like, this man was born blind. I know why. It was somebody's fault. Somebody did something, so therefore, here's the consequence. And so how much do we spend our time, if you're laying in the hospital bed, don't you ask the question, what did I do to get me here? Okay, that's just normal. Or why is this going on? Or when I, at night, I'll ask myself, I don't feel very good. I wonder what I ate to do today to get me here. Okay? And I think sometimes we take that little thing there and keep expanding it out. And we think somehow that we're in control of a whole lot more than we're actually in control of. And so can, can we say that how the world works is that God is ultimately in control? Can we say that? God's ultimately in control. Which means that, you know what's really good news? I am not. Can we all say that together, online, everywhere? I am not in control. Let's just do that one more time for fun. I am not in control. Now, here's the question. Do you live that way? I'm seeing a whole bunch of nodding up and down. Yes, I live that way. Fantastic. For those of you out there that are kind of wishy-washy, like, I kind of live that way sometimes. Okay? I want to read a little something to you, and it's a a little bit longer, but as I do, there's a story here that makes a good point. And I'd like to also just share a couple things first out of Scripture before I go to the story. You know that it says when the people of God left Israel and they went into exile, okay? Nebuchadnezzar was one of those kings. In the book of Daniel chapter 4, he is all proud and haughty. Look how great I am. And he's like, I'm doing wonderful. I'm ruling over this world. And then God says, oh, by the way, you're going to spend some time now like an ox, getting wet in the morning with dew falling, dew on you. You're going, to eat, you're going to eat grass. Your fingernails are going to grow long. Your hair is going to grow long. You're going to be just like an animal for a while until I humble you. And he was. When they're in a little bit longer, then the, the Persians come over and take charge. And, and here's this Persian king by the name of Cyrus. And listen to what God Almighty, who rules over all things, he's ultimately in charge. Listen to what he calls Cyrus. This, as far as we know unbelieving Persian king. This is what he says about Cyrus. Who says of Cyrus, who God says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus. God's in control. We might think, oh, no, the enemy is in control. You might say, oh, no, the virus is in control. Oh, no, all of the stuff. I mean, just think of it. 
why aren't there more than seven people in church today? We have a pandemic on our hands. It's a big deal. 62 confirmed cases of, as of last night in the Austin area. People around the world are dying. It looks like it's in control. And yet God still reigns supreme. Right? You might also think of Joseph. Joseph is taken by his brothers because he's a dreamer and he's kind of a pain to them. And so he takes him, they put him in this pit and then they sell him and he goes into slavery, ends up in jail again in this dungeon situation. And through all of that where Joseph and the brothers just, you know, thankfully they got rid of him, they're happy, okay? Joseph is miserable, he's going through all of this and yet when he gets out into Egypt, he's second only to Pharaoh to rule over all for God's purposes, I wonder how many times you and I go through difficult things because God's in control, not because he hates us, not because he's punishing us, not because we've done something wrong per se. He's doing it because he needs to get us where we need to be with the right changes in our lives to accomplish his purposes. Do we ever think that? Do we ever let something happen to us and say, wait a second, I need to think big picture here. God might have something in plan that I could never see and it might not even be about me. I was reading a children's, I was listening to a children's book just this last, yesterday. C.S. Lewis, I think it's called A Boy and His Horse. Have you ever read that? Oh, y'all should read it. You too. Okay, you should read it. In there, there's this boy who was found by a fisherman. And he tells the story of his life and such. And it's just a great little story. But he was found by a fisherman because there was a man on a boat who gave of his rations until he died so that boy could live. Well, this, that man had to do what he did so the boy could live, so the boy could do what he did with his life, which was change the world, basically. And that man's life was important, but it didn't seem like it as you went through the story. He didn't have anything to do except keep this main character alive. Is God in control? Yes. Is he working? Yes. Do I always, can I always see what he's doing exactly and get it all figured out so I feel like I'm in control? No. There's also a really great place if you would just look at Acts chapter 2, I think it is. Let's see. And I forget where it was, but it says in here, Sorry, I apologize. I lost my, lost my place. But it says that you handed him over, but it was by God's foreknowledge that Jesus came. God's in control. The whole thing of Jesus didn't happen by accident. God knew exactly what he was doing. And sometimes I have had the, these folks uh, back when I was on Vicarage, they said, I like the New Testament God. I don't like the Old Testament God. Okay? Let's just quick cover that real quick. Please repeat with me this beautiful passage from John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world... Oh, stop for a second. Who's that? God. It wasn't that Jesus so loved the world, but God's not very nice. Okay? What did Jesus do while he walked the world? Only what he saw his Father was doing. Only what the Father gave him to do. So when Jesus shows compassion, guess what? That's giving us a glimpse of who? God the Father. God the Father so loved the world... 
that he gave his son, he sent his son, he said, this is the plan. You will accomplish this for the saving of all of us. He's in control. And we rejoice and we delight and we hoop and holler and we celebrate all by ourselves today. Right? So as we think about this God who's in control, and yet the world, if we look at 1 Corinthians 2, there's this wisdom of the world and the way of the world. And if we look at 1 John chapter 2, it says this in verses 15 to 17, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. And so while you may be saying, well, well, God's in charge ultimately, but there still seems to be a lot of stuff happening that's not good, you're right. Because there's the ways of the world and the ways of God, and God is using all these ways, Romans 8, 28 and 29, to conform us to the image of Jesus. But it still is a mess if we look around. Look at what's happening now. There's a mess. And so we see the tension. We know God rules over all, and he's using even the bad stuff for good, his purposes. But we recognize how the world works. God's in control ultimately. I'm not in control, but it's still a mess. And I want to share the story. This, again, is from Philip Yancey, a writer. He says this. The last weekend of February 2007, I spoke at a historic church in Los Alamos, New Mexico. When I spoke to the community on the subject of prayer that evening, I related some of my mountain climbing adventures. For instance, on the day my wife and I summited Mount Wilson, we were still well above the safety of Timberline when dark clouds moved in. Lightning struck closer and closer, What do we do? I asked our experienced companion. There's really not much you can do, he replied. The granite rock conducts electricity. I'd recommend separating by at least 100 yards or so. That way, if one of us gets hit, another can go for help. And squat down with your feet together to make yourself as small a target as possible. My wife and I looked at each other. Finally, I shrugged and said, Honey, we've had a good life. Let's go together. We ditched our hiking poles and squatted down, as our friend suggested, but side by side holding hands. For the next hour, we got pummeled by rain, hail, sleet, snow, and a mixture of all at once, all the while counting the seconds between each lightning bolt that sizzled around us and the blast of thunder that followed. I learned an important lesson, I told the folks who had gathered in the the church, I'm not in control. I must tell you, as a freelance writer, I'm something of a control freak. I have to be. Since I have no boss telling me what to do, I have to organize my own life, and most of the time I go around feeling like I'm in control. As I learned atop Mount Wilson, that's an illusion. I went on to say that this mountain climbing lesson actually applies all the time. Even when I think I'm in control, I'm not. I could die of a heart attack right in front of you before finishing this sentence. Some in the audience laughed nervously. Or I could have an auto accident driving back to Denver tomorrow, probably far more likely than getting hit by lightning on Mount Wilson. More laughter. How eerily prophetic those words would prove to be. Sunday morning, driving back from Los Alamos to Denver, I turned down a small remote road just over the Colorado border, more for variety and scenery than anything else. 
Snow had fallen a few days before, and several times I was surprised by patches of ice on the road. Suddenly, as I headed downhill into one curve, my Ford Explorer began to fishtail. I fought it until the right rear tire slipped off the pavement and grabbed soft dirt. Then the Explorer rolled sideways over and over five times in all. The noise was deafening. A crescendo of of glass, plastic, and metal breaking all at once. Every window shattered, spilling skis, boots, ice skates, my laptop computer, and luggage across the Colorado countryside. Finally, the rolling stopped, with my vehicle in an upright position. I turned off the ignition, unbuckled my seatbelt, and ducked under the collapsed roof to stumble to the ground. My nose was bleeding. I had cuts on my face, legs, and arms, and I felt a searing pain in my upper back just below the neck. My belongings were strewn over a hundred feet, and I wandered the desert landscape searching for my laptop and cell phone. A few minutes later, a car car pulled over. A well-dressed couple got out, ran to the scene, and started giving orders. They were both certified EMTs, and their husband headed up the ambulance corps for the county. They led me to their car, called for an ambulance, and sat beside me holding my head in a fixed position. How did you happen to come down this remote road early on a Sunday morning, I asked, after they stabilized my neck. We're Mormons, the woman replied. We've just started a mission church in the tiny town of San Luis, and we're driving over to help them get on their feet. Then thus began one of the longest, most memorable days of my life. When the ambulance came, attendants strapped me into a rigid bodyboard, taping my head still and immobilizing it with a neck brace. We drove almost an hour to reach the town of Alamosa, where I was transferred with much jostling and bumping onto a gurney and into a hospital emergency room. For two hours, I lay in a most uncomfortable position on the bodyboard, awaiting results from CAT scans. Then the doctor came in. There's no easy way to say this, Mr. Yancey. He had a broken neck specifically the C3 vertebrae, in a pulverized fashion. The good news was that the break did not occur in the spinal cord channel itself. If it had, I would likely have ended up paralyzed, Yancey says, like Christopher Reeve. The bad news was that a bone fragment, fragment, fragment sorry, may well have nicked a major artery. We have a jet standing by if needed to airlift you to Denver for surgery, the doctor explained. We'll do another CAT scan, this time with an iodine dye solution to reveal any possible leakage from the artery. I must emphasize, this is a life-threatening situation. You may want to contact your loved ones. In all, I lay strapped onto that bodyboard for seven hours that day, plenty of time to think through my life. I've written articles on people whose lives have been constantly or instantly changed by an accident that left them paraplegic or quadriplegic. I had narrowly missed that fate. But if my artery was leaking, an artery that feeds the brain, or if it formed a blood clot, well, I soon faced a fate worse than paralysis. As I lay there contemplating what I had just been teaching in Los Alamos about prayer and facing for the first time the imminent possibility of death, I felt surprisingly peaceful. I reflected on what a wonderful life I had had with a life-giving marriage partner, adventures in more than 50 countries, 
work that allows me both meaning and near total freedom and connections through my writing with people I've never met. I look back on my life and felt little regret. And as I thought of what may await me, I felt deep trust. Although no one raised in the kind of church environment I grew up in totally leaves behind the smell of fire and brimstone, I had an overwhelming sense of trust in God. I'd come to know a God of compassion and mercy and love. As it happened, thank God, oh yes, thank God, the results turned out far better than I could have hoped. The scans revealed no arterial leakage. The hospital released me with an hour of my wife's arrival, fitted with a stiff neck brace that kept my head from moving for the next 12 weeks. After several months of physical therapy, the fractures healed, and I'm left only with some residual soreness and vertebrae that are slightly misaligned. I may need surgery for spinal fusion sometime later, but in almost every way, I have resumed normal life. Looking back now, I see many coincidences, or you might say God incidences, that contributed to a good outcome. The EMT trained Mormons traveling that route early on a Sunday morning. The most experienced x-ray technician, normally off-duty on weekends, filling in for a sick colleague. The emergency room doctor, a star graduate of an elite medical school, returning to a small Colorado town to be of service. And most of all, the injury itself, serious but not nearly as catastrophic as the alternatives. I now look back on that day, spent strapped to a body board in an ambulance and then the emergency room as a unique gift. All of us will face death, some through a long degenerative illness like cancer and others through an abrupt accident. I had something in between, a window of time in which I lay suspended between life and non-life with the very real possibility of death within a few minutes or hours and yet an opportunity to emerge with an overwhelming good news and another chance at life. I hope that I will never forget that window of time or what I saw through it. For a few weeks after the accident, I walked around in a daze of grace, looking at the sky, trees, grass, my wife, my friends, with newly washed eyes. Even as my battered body brought new aches and pains to my attention, life held surprises around every corner, fresh promptings to gratitude and joy. Each day I woke with a profound sense of gratitude for the simplest things. Birds flitting from tree to tree, the sound of a creek flowing around rocks and ice near our home, the ability to move a finger, to dress myself. Words of the accident got out, and over the next few months, I was overwhelmed by support from family, friends, and people I had never met. In the act of writing, I spilled something of my soul onto the printed page, and through the cards and letters that came in, I realized a remarkable link can forge even with strangers. One person wrote me, even from the Quaker church, saying they were praying for him. My wife, while working as a hospice chaplain, observed a striking difference in the way that believers and unbelievers face death. Both feel fear and pain and grief, but Christians have an almost palpable contribution in the mysterious linkage that comes through prayer. It's the difference between a, hospital, a hospice visitor saying, I will pray for you, honest, every day, and someone saying, good luck, best wishes. Recently, a spat of authors has been trumpeting a kind of triumphalist atheism. I can understand why someone would choose atheism, but I cannot understand why such a stance might seem like good news, something worth trumpeting. Lying helpless, 
strapped to a bodyboard, I would have felt utterly and inconsolably alone, except for my faith that I lay in the hands of a God who loves me and promises a future beyond death. I am trying to keep before me the crystalline vision I had while lying strapped down for seven hours. I have learned how thin is the thread that separates life from non-life, and how comforting is the knowledge that I am not alone on this journey. I have learned these things in a way that I doubt I will ever forget. What we spend so much time and energy on, finances, image, achievements, matter so little in the face of imminent death. What matters reduces down to a few basic questions. And this is what I want you to think about as you leave this message today. These things. Who do I love? Who will I miss? How have I spent my life? Am I ready for what's next? The challenge is, how do I keep those questions in the forefront as I come to my desk each day and face piles of paper and blinking electronic messages? God's in control. He took care of Philip Yancey. God's in control. How will we now use the life we've been given? Part of what I want you to think about before I move on to the next part, and remember, the next part's not going to be near as long. Don't worry, okay? But I want you to think about when has your life felt out of control and you were afraid? Are we so busy in life that we forget to think, whom do I love? How have I spent my life? Again, as in one of the recent phone calls, it's just really interesting how people are actually making time to slow down and talk to each other. Because I don't have to run to the next big event. I don't have to get on to watch the next thing because I'm stuck at home and I'm looking for something beyond just the crazy videos. TV. I actually want to connect again with those people whom I love. Trusting God knows what he's doing even in the middle of a pandemic. Am I open to that thought? Am I open to that thought? Thomas Nagel, he writes something. I'm not going to read it to you. I thought about it, but you've had enough story time today. He writes is this American atheist philosopher. And what he writes is basically, he's scared. He doesn't want there to be a God. Okay? And at the end of his quote, I just got to read the part, that part to you. At the end of his quote, he says this, I want atheism to be true, and I am uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition. I'm curious whether there is anyone who is genuinely indifferent as to whether there is a God. How many times don't you and I and the people around us live almost in indifference towards the things of God? Those Pharisees, they were saying, no, we just won't believe it. 
Tell me again how this happened. This couldn't have. It didn't fit within their worldview. Does Jesus fit and does Jesus command your worldview? We can't just be indifferent towards Jesus. We can't just say, I'm just going to live my life however I want to. And, you know, if there's a God at the end, then I know he'll save me. Is that the kind of life God calls us to? Is that the kind of life Jesus says, come, come, just live your life however you want to, and I'll be there for you someday if you just kind of wait long enough and we'll see. Is that what it says? Doesn't he say, come and follow me, live as children of light? In other words, Jesus makes a difference. If we just look like the world around us all the time, those parents, the Pharisees came and they said, we're scared, we don't want to get kicked out of the synagogue, we don't know what's going on here, let him answer for himself. How many times in my life, I can't speak for you, hold on just for a second. How many times in my life have I let the fear of man create in me such an indifference? Because I don't want to follow and live in the light. And Jesus says, I make you now children of light. Come follow me. Are we open to that? Are we open to that new life where Jesus gets to live in charge? He's in control for our good. And the small group that's here today says, yes. Right? And online, you also know that God is in control. He's caring for you. In through the hard things, he's working to accomplish something so that we are drawn to trust him more and more. And live lives of fruitfulness as we follow him. Amen?